Okay, so welcome back. So in this last period, I'd like to come to the seventh of these treasures, the seventh of these awakening factors, which is equanimity, upeka. Now, it's interesting that this word upeka in Pali translates both as equanimity and as indifference. And it perhaps shows how close these two can be, that indifference is kind of the shadow side or the, the near enemy, we might say, of equanimity. Now, as the awakening qualities are presented in the text, they, they begin with sati, mindfulness, and they find their fruition, their maturity in equanimity. And on one level, this is certainly true because equanimity is both uh, a pathway of cultivation and the deepest attainment of the meditative life. It's a, it's a word that's used interchangeably with nibbana, the unshakable liberation of the heart. But as I've mentioned, we don't need to follow through this in such a sequential way. In fact, if any of you who are familiar with contemporary mindfulness teachings and eight-week programs will know that equanimity is almost lesson one in week one. When people doing the body scan are undertaking this practice of scanning through their bodies, I really taught how to be equally near the pleasant and the unpleasant, um, not preferencing one over the other. But as an unshakable liberation of the heart, this is clearly not where we begin. You know, we don't begin with unshakability. We're often very deeply touched by the world around us and the world within us. And we may find ourselves often feeling shaken. And it is in those moments of being knocked off balance that we learn to cultivate this quality uh, of equanimity. Upaka or equanimity translates in many ways, but the most, in my understanding, the most accurate translation is to stand in the middle of. To stand in the middle of. Sometimes it's translated as being equally near all things, a quality of inner balance and poise. It's so important to recognize that equanimity does not leave the other awakening factors behind, but it is infused with joy, with mindfulness, with calm, with collectedness, with curiosity. In another of the pathways that the Buddha offers of the Brahma Viharas are the divine abidings of kindness, compassion, joyfulness. Equanimity is also seen as being the, the fruition of all of these qualities, but it's also infused with kindness, compassion, and joyfulness. I think of equanimity not as a state. I'm not I'm not particularly interested personally in states. You know, I think of equanimity as an understanding. It is a relational way of being with all things that rests upon a very deep insight 
into the intrinsic nature of change, unpredictability, and non-self. That is the heart of all events and experiences. In the midst of this, all of this, the heart can abide fully liberated from the greed, the hatred, and the confusion that are the parents of suffering and despair. So I think of equanimity as an embodied understanding, a way of being that is infused with these very profound insights into the three characteristics. Now we already stand in the midst of all things. We already stand in the middle of, there's nowhere else we can stand. We already stand in the middle of our life with all of its joys and all of its sorrows. There's no other place we can be. We stand upon the shifting sands of life, unpredictable and uncertain. There are people that we have loved and lost. There are people that we struggle with. We have no power to, to guarantee our, our unassailable safety or the safety of those that we love. We cannot choose to have only delightful people in our lives, perpetual lovely experiences and eternal health and immortality. This must be clear to us that we're not in control of the world of conditions. And we all know, and we've all seen how our worlds can crumble in a moment, we know the impossibility of finding a predictable, enduring self in any moment. Have you ever experimented with this and got up in the morning and said, you know, I'm only going to have a happy self today. I'm only going to have a calm self today. I'm only going to have a mindful self today. It doesn't really work, does it? We know, too, that the events of the world, of, in our world, the pain, the suffering, the despair, the injustices, they touch us deeply. And equanimity is not a surrender of that empathy or attunement. We also perhaps realize that as difficult as the events in our world, inwardly or outwardly, can be, to embrace that it is actually our reactivity that knocks us off balance, much more than the actual events. It's our reactivity that sends us reeling. Our fears, our aversions, our, our insistence at times that life must be other than it is. The arguments we have with the unarguables. Equanimity never surrender sensitivity, compassion, care, and mindfulness, but it does surrender the arguments. The, the Buddha put it that just as a great mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is steady amidst all the changes on this earth. Just as a great mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is steady amidst all the changes on this earth. 
This is a great blessing in our lives. It's such a great blessing. When we meet the situations that actually are quite unfair or unjust, you know, it's not helped by our reactivity. You know, the, the world isn't helped by, by more anger or more aversion or more greed or more argument. It, it benefits. Equanimity is a, is, allows us to act with courage, to respond with courage without selfing in the midst of it. The early teachings speak of equanimity, of a way of meeting this life, a way of meeting impermanence, which, which is not emotionally neutral. We, we grieve our losses, whether it's the loss of someone we love or whether it's the loss of our identities or our health or our youth, we grieve our losses. We fear being deprived of, of all that we have gathered in our lives. We, we often fear illness and death. You know, impermanence is not emotionally neutral. Change has such huge impact and implications. It's almost as if everything we encounter in this life, inwardly and outwardly, has really a very simple message written upon it. Do not cling. Do not cling. Suzuki Roshi once said that renunciation is not getting rid of the things of this world, but accepting that they pass away. My first teacher used to say to us, he said, renunciation is the greatest gift of compassion you can offer to yourself. It's not clinging. As we've reflected on over the weekend, that we're, we're not exempt from the first ennobling truth. We are, we are vulnerable human beings. It's, it's written into our DNA that we will age. We will experience illness. We will experience pain. And in time, we don't know when or how, we will die. How do we meet this? We can meet this with denial, resistance, dissociation, fear, or with, equani with equanimity. And what difference does that make to the quality of our lives just now and how we live those lives? The Buddha speaks of standing in the midst of what he called the worldly winds with balance and understanding. The worldly winds are praise and blame, success and failure, pleasure and pain, gain and loss. These are part of all of our lives, aren't they? They're woven into our lives. It's not our fault and it's not the fault of others that we lose things that we experience blame, it's not our fault. We can learn, and this is such a huge part of equanimity, we can learn not to be defined by the events and experiences that touch our lives. You know, and this carries into our formal practice. You know, not to be defined by the contents of a single sitting or a single walk-in. And yet we, it so easily happens, doesn't it? I'm such a terrible meditator. You know, I'm a terrific meditator. 
but we can learn not to be defined by the events and the experiences that touch our lives. We can learn not to be defined, not to define ourselves by the contents of our consciousness. Sadness can happen rather than I am sad. You know, aversion can arise rather than I'm such an angry person. You know, anxiety might appear. It doesn't make me an anxious human being. We can learn not to be defined by the contents of our consciousness. We don't, when nobody asks us to like loss, unwelcome change or uncertainty, but we can learn to meet them with kindness, compassion, and equanimity. During the pandemic, I was very aware in teaching that how many people were living in a landscape of loss, loss of identity, loss of certainty, loss of safety, loss of loved ones, um, loss of so, so many things. You know, uh, I had seven people move into my house, you know. In a moment, I lost all silence, all space, all solitude. And I thought, what do we do with this? You know, what do we do with this? You know, it's, it's so easy to see that doorway open up into, you know, resistance and it shouldn't be happening. And, and, you know, how do I get back what I had before when this is over? What does it mean to stand in the middle of this? with poise and with balance. Um, it's, it's a big ask. It's a big ask, but it, 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 is what, it is what liberates our lives. And it liberates us really to reach out and, and be of service to others and sometimes to be a refuge to others. My father died during the during one of the lockdowns, and you know he, he didn't die of COVID, but he died of starvation because he was in a nursing home. And you know my uh, who didn't have the staff to uh, take care of its residents. Um, and you know I, you know my mind went went oh no you know no no this couldn't happen not 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 today. And and I realized this did happen. This did happen. And, you know, my, my whole family was kind of freaking out in the, you know, who do we sue? You know, who do we blame? You know, who do we, who, 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 who can we hate? You know, how can we, you know, we can't fix this. You know, we can't fix this. And to learn to be a refuge to others and, and to stand in the ground, even in the midst of, you know, injustice or, you know, that which is unfair or unacceptable. And to say, I, the poise is what allows me to respond with clarity. The balance is what allows me to reach out, you know, to, to help, to serve, to, to be a refuge. And I, I think so much of equanimity as being, you know, not a cold place. It's, it's not a cold or unfeeling place. But I think of equanimity as being one of the greatest refuges for ourselves and for others. I think it's, it's within the world of human relationship that we, we are most easily knocked off balance in relationship to those we love and to those we struggle with. We are relational and emotional beings. 
deeply touched by the joys and the sorrows of others. We experience disappointment when we discover we have invested or we have invested the implicit power to make us happy or unhappy into another person and they don't make us happy. At times we experience despair when we we discover we, we do not hold the power to totally protect those we love from pain and sorrow. This is really a hard one, isn't it? That we don't have the power to totally protect those that we love from pain and sorrow. I think this is one of the most powerful classrooms of equanimity. To, to be fully present for those in our lives without believing that we have the power to change the course of another person's mind. Just as those who care for us do not have the power to change the course of our hearts. This is in our hands. There are some phrases that are used uh, in the traditional uh, cultivation or practice of equanimity. They go, life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May I remain unshaken by life's rise and fall. I care for you deeply, but sadly, I cannot protect you from distress. You feel what that holds? You know, I care for you deeply, but I also know that I sadly cannot protect you from distress. How would that feel, you know, in the closest relationships of our lives, the people that we we care for so deeply and we want to protect them from distress? But we know we don't have the power to do that. We know that that we cannot, you know, put them in a cocoon. You know, we know that they they have their, their own minds and hearts and the quality of those hearts and minds is much in their hands, as much as we offer support and love and care. I think that the deepest dimension of equanimity is rooted in understanding the third noble truth, the unshakable deliverance of the heart, the cooling of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. As I mentioned yesterday, the Buddha was so deeply committed to understanding the architecture of distress and understanding that to do so, we need to understand the architecture of our own world of experience. Our worlds are are very universal, are very personal and individual. Yet often we assume them to be the true and and the universal world. Through the process of sensory information, interfacing with perception, with memory, with emotional association and thought, we identify people as friends or enemies. We are objects are deemed to be intrinsically beautiful or ugly. Events are deemed to be intimidating or enchanting. And we assume that this is true for everyone. 
But our world of experience, our personal world of experience, is being shaped moment to moment by the by this interface, by this matrix of events happening within us. Our sense of self and our sense of the other is shaped moment to moment by this this interface, by this process, as are our views, our opinions that govern our speech and thought and action. And all of that triggers the patterns of craving, ill will, agitation, dissociation, and doubt. Is that that piece was quite dense? Did you get that all right? Is that, did you get that all right? Just nod or not, and I say no again. Or, no, okay, I'm going to repeat it. Through the process of sensory information, sight, sound, sensations, taste, touch, thought, through the process of sensory information, interfacing with perception, with memory, with emotional association and thought, we identify people as being friends or enemies. We deem objects to be intrinsically beautiful or ugly. Um, events to be intimidating or enchanting. And our world is being shaped moment to moment by this process, by the, this mingling together of all of this. We assume it to be everyone's world. We assume it to be true. Our sense of self and our sense of the other is shaped moment to moment by this process as are our views, our opinions, that govern our speech, our thought, and our actions, that trigger the patterns of craving, ill will, agitation, dissociation, and doubt. We will always, you know, there's something very humbling, very humbling about being able to question the truthfulness of what we see or assumed to be so. And there's something very humbling about questioning the views that we have about another person. Um, there's something very humbling, but also very liberating to be able to question the views that we hold about ourselves rather than holding them as being unassailable truths. We are always going to rely upon perception to navigate our way through life. But one of the functions, as I mentioned earlier, of mindfulness is to sever the link between perception and emotional memory and association. Instead of saying, I know you, I know this, we learn, we learn to have a greater sense of ease in not knowing. We don't feel that driving anxiety to be able to, to pin things down, to, to fix things in place, to make things solid. We learn to find a certain ease in, in not knowing, in a, in a willingness to be surprised, to, to see anew and to learn. And this is such a huge gift to ourselves and such a gift to others. I think we can learn to be still in the midst of all things, instead of endlessly trying to define everything, 
out of anxiety. I think we learn to let the moment tell its story to us rather than us persistently layering our story upon people, upon the world, upon the moment. And that's that shift, you know, of being able to listen and to let the moment tell its story to us. In one of the early texts, the Udana Sutta, uh, which is in praise of equanimity, the Buddha taught that for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. When there is no motion, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. And this verily is the end of suffering. The motion is the movement of compulsion towards and away from, wanting, not wanting. The motion is the, the agitation of the hindrance factors and, reacti and reactivity. And for one who does not cling, there is no motion, not being caught in those waves. And then there is stillness. And in stillness, there's nothing lacking. There's no sense of insufficiency. There's no sense of deficit. And as the Buddha put it, this verily is the end of suffering. There's responsiveness and that sense of the liberation of the heart. That's what I want to offer on equanimity. So we have some space before we end, if there's any reflections or questions. <clears throat> 